Well, we're going to be talking about peace today, as the video said. We've been following the themes of Advent. Last week, we uh, lit the candle of hope, and this week, we light the candle of peace, which is also called the preparation candle, preparing our hearts for God's coming. As we said, Advent is a fancy Latin word, which means anticipating the coming of Christ. Eugene Peterson once said, Shalom, or peace, is one of the richest words in the Bible. You can no more define it by looking in the dictionary than you can define a person by his or her social security number. It gathers all aspects of wholeness that result from God's will being completed in us. It's the work of God that, when complete, releases streams of living water in us and pulsates with eternal life. Every time Jesus healed, forgave, or called someone, we have a demonstration of shalom. So shalom is much more than just peace. It's more than just the absence of conflict, but it's, it's wholeness, it's fulfillment. Christian theologian Cornelius Plantiga, I read a lot of him in college and seminary, says the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight is what the Hebrew prophets call shalom. We call it peace, but it means far more than the mere peace of mind or ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. So as we talk about peace today, we're talking about the way things should be, the way that God designed things to be. And as the, the video indicated, um, I want to begin today by tying peace into this idea of God being our good shepherd. If you have a Bible and you want to turn with me, we're going to begin in John chapter 10. If not, you can follow along and listen as I read. But some of you may be going, how, how does the good shepherd relate to peace? Well, peace and hope and joy and love and all of the themes of Advent are not just fleeting things that we chase after, as I said last week. They are realities that we experience through a relationship with the King of glory, with God himself. And that relationship happens through Jesus Christ, the Good Shepherd. And probably one of the best passages in all of Scripture that speaks of God, and specifically Jesus as a Good Shepherd, is John chapter 10. So I want to read for you verses 1 to 18, and I want to just draw some, some application out of it. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, anyone who sneaks over the wall of a sheepfold rather than going through the gate must surely be a thief and a robber. But the one who enters through the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep recognize his voice and come to him. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. So real quickly here, there's two different sheepfolds that we're talking about. One was in the city and in the the, the neighborhood area, and a number of shepherds would keep their sheep there. And there would be a, a, a gate person who would watch and protect those sheep. And when each shepherd came, every single one of them had their own individual call. And even though sheep are incredibly dumb, only his sheep would come or her sheep would come when that call was, was made. And so kind of an interesting thing. People have been in Palestine and witnessed this. It's quite an amazing thing. The other the other type of sheepfold that we're talking about were the kinds that were out in the wilderness and out in the countryside. 
And they were literally like a, whor- a big circle, almost like a horseshoe, with a small opening at the front. There was no gate, but the shepherd himself would lay down in front of that opening, and the shepherd himself was the gate to the sheepfold and would protect them and prevent anything from coming in and out. So when Jesus talked about himself, the symbolism and the imagery of him being the door, he meant that very literally. Verse 3, the gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep recognize his voice and comes to him, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. After he has gathered his flock, he walks ahead of them, and they follow him because they know his voice. They won't follow a stranger. They will run from him because they won't know his voice. Those who heard Jesus use this illustration didn't understand what he meant, so he explained it to them. I tell you the truth. I am the gate for the sheep, and all who came before me were thieves and robbers, but the true sheep did not listen to them. Yes, I am the gate, and those who come through me will be saved. They will come and go freely and will find good pasture. The thief's purpose is to steal and to kill and to destroy. My purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd sacrifices his life for the sheep. A hired hand will run when he sees a wolf coming. He will abandon the sheep because they don't belong to him and he isn't their shepherd. And so the wolf attacks them and scatters the flock. The hired hand runs away because he's working only for the money and doesn't really care about the sheep, has no investment. But I am the good shepherd and I know my own sheep and they know me. Just as my father knows me and I know the father. So I sacrifice my life for the sheep. I have other sheep too that are not in the sheepfold. Jesus was talking about the the Gentiles there, non-Jews, to whom the gospel was soon to be going out to. Um, And so they will listen to my voice and there will be one flock with one shepherd. The Father loves me because I sacrifice my life so I may take it back again. No one can take my life from me, but I sacrifice it voluntarily, for I have the authority to lay it down when I want, and I also have the authority to take it up again. This is what my Father has commanded. Summarizing this, our good shepherd not only guards the door to life and salvation and security, he is the door, as we said. He is the door that we enter through and come back through, um, and go out through. Though he created and owns us, he created us and he owns us, he laid down his life for us. And the text says that he did this on his own initiative and by his own authority. So it's not like God duped him into this and he got blindsided. Jesus willingly went to the cross and laid down his life. And peace comes from knowing his voice. And from having a personal relationship with him. Peace comes from knowing that he will provide for every single one of our our needs. That's how this concept of the good shepherd ties in. And so I want to draw out three dimensions of God's peace today that I believe are are not only profound but transformative for us. But I wanted to begin by us understanding that peace is through God and through Christ. Christ. Peace is not something external and independent that we chase after and that we try and uh, seize, but peace comes through a relationship with God through Christ. And God's peace, first of all, I believe, is powerfully present. God's peace is powerfully present. 
Just like last week, we said, how can hope that was prophesied hundreds of years, centuries before its fulfillment, how could hope be hope for people in the day to which the prophet spoke, when, when the fulfillment of that hope wouldn't be realized for 700 years? How, <coughs> how could they have hope then? Well, it's because hope was found in the person of God and in his character, and not merely through fulfilled promises and prophecies. And the same is true today of peace. We, you've all heard many times that just like joy is independent of circumstances or happenings, like happiness is, so also peace is not dependent upon circumstances. We can have incredible peace even in the midst of chaos. When the disciples were at sea and the waves were tossing, threatening the boat, Jesus was asleep. He was in perfect peace. The disciples were terrified, and they, many of them were fishermen. So that tells us the nature of the storm was quite severe. But it is possible to have peace in the midst of the storm. As I mentioned in the teaching teaser this, this last week, the type of peace that we're talking about today is something that every single one of us desperately needs in our own life and in the world, because it's not a peace that comes from this world. And the good news is that it's not just the promise of better days to come, but it's God's personal pledge, a divine pledge, if you will, for the power of his peace right now in the present that can be appropriated in our life. And peace is about having a personal relationship with the good shepherd. That's why Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one goes to God except through me. I'm the door of the sheep. I'm the bread of life. All of the I am statements that he made and incidentally, we've said many times that every one of those I am statements is claiming the divinity of the Old Testament God, where, where God was asked of Moses, what should I tell the people your name is? He said, Yahweh, I am. You are who? I am. Fill in the blank. I am. And Jesus was claiming that exact, and that's, that's why it's ridiculous to, for scholars and theologians and critics and atheists today to say, well, Jesus wasn't claiming to be God. Well, look at the reaction of the people every single time. They wanted to stone him. They wanted to kill him. Not because he preached a bad sermon or because he offended them, but because he was claiming to be God in a monotheistic culture where there could only be one God. And they couldn't wrap their heads around the fact that there was Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It was blasphemy to them that someone who appeared to be human, the carpenter's son, could be claiming divinity. We, we heard of your birth in the manger. How could you be God when God is eternal? He's pre-existent, and we know from Scripture that Jesus is eternal and pre-existent as well. So peace today is not just the promise of better things in the future, but it's a divine pledge for the power of God's peace right now in the present. Jesus himself said in, in John 14, verse 27, a verse that many of you know by heart, my peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. So let not your hearts be troubled or fearful. Jesus began John chapter 14 by those same words. Be not afraid, be not fearful. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. He's saying he is the answer to peace. I read a book this week that the author was saying one of the dangers today of living in a world of constant distractions is that we never go to the bottom of our pain and of our sadness of our, or our emptiness. We, we pull out our phone and we scroll through the news or we play words with friends. 
and we look at the sports scores, or, you know, we watch TV. We have so many things to distract us that many of us never go to the bottom of our pain and our sadness and our emptiness. And this person said, we could do well to hit rock bottom once in a while and just to rest there for a bit. Because it's only when we hit rock bottom that we can experience the all-sustaining power of God's peace that surpasses all understanding. I, I've, I've referenced this many times, and I, I reference this incident not because it's the only pain and grief that Denise and I have ever been through, but the very first time I ever hit rock bottom was when we were newly married. And we had just had a miscarriage, and then we got pregnant with Amanda, our oldest. And it was an extremely difficult pregnancy with Denise having preeclampsia or toxemia. Her blood pressure went up. The baby was in danger. And, and Mandy came 10 days prematurely. And she spent, I mean, not 10 days, she came 10 weeks prematurely. And she spent 10 days in neonatology at Huntington Memorial in Pasadena. And that was the first time in my young life that I hit rock bottom. Because up until that point, God had always delivered on everything I ever wanted, and now we had just experienced a miscarriage. And so it wasn't like trusting God always had a happy outcome. It was clear at that point that God had bigger plans that were beyond me. So I didn't have any assurance that a man was going to live. And during those 10 days, it was just a tough time. At that beginning part, Denise was still in the hospital recovering from not only... Uh, um, you know, having the baby, but just from everything that she had suffered. And it, it was 10 days of just hanging on, wondering if she would make it. And as you know, she did make it, and the, the story's happy now. But that was, that was when I cut my teeth spiritually. As a young believer, I was at the tail end of seminary training for the ministry, but I had never experienced peace personally in that way because I had never been through something that rocked me like that. And it's only when we have those times of hitting rock bottom where we're not medicating ourselves or distracting ourselves from pain and hurt that we can truly experience the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. God's peace is powerfully present. Secondly, I believe it's comprehensively complete. Comprehensively complete. Author and pastor Tim Keller says, the world's peace is an intermittent peace. Because the world's peace is based upon circumstances, but God's peace, Christian peace, is constant. God's promise of peace is not merely spiritual. I think that was the, the problem that the first century Jews experienced is they wanted physical peace. They didn't want spiritual peace. They wanted deliverance from their oppressors, from the Romans. They wanted a different way of life. But God's peace is much more than just physical peace or spiritual peace or emotional or relational or psychological peace. It's everything, everything. During the last few years, there was a point in the middle of the, the pandemic where I was struggling with peace. I wasn't struggling with my salvation. I wasn't struggling with spiritual peace. I wasn't struggling with physical peace because we live in relative comfort here in Ventura, and there was no threat to my life or my family. But long story short, I was struggling with a, a nagging sense of discontentment over the ministry and my role as a pastor, because 
when, when you are in the ministry, as long as I've been in the ministry, you go through those periods where you're like, am I making a difference? Am I being effective? And in the middle of the pandemic, when you're not having the same human interaction that you normally have, um, it, it was a soul-searching time for all of us. It caused us to rethink and reassess things. And so I was having one of those periods, one of those seasons where I was like, God, you know, the ministry's hard. And it's hard to make a living. It's hard to get by in the ministry. And I want to know that I'm making a difference. I want to know that what I do matters. I know it has an eternal benefit. I get that. But I need tangible stuff once in a while. And in the midst of this struggling, I got an email, a random email that I almost trashed and sent off to spam. And it was from a random couple that I met in Israel six years prior. No email up until now, but six years later, they're emailing me. I didn't even know they had my email or kept my email. There were five of us that went to Israel in 2015. Al Bruckner, Shannon Maxwell, uh, Jim and Andrea Stock, and myself. And while we were there, we had the opportunity to uh, celebrate communion together, of which I led that in the, in the garden tomb venue there, venue or yeah. I call it the venue because I don't believe it's the original Garden of Gethsemane, even though it's been set up to look very much like that. But it's a beautiful, reflective, contemplative place. And, and I led communion for our people, and this couple just happened to be there and said, could, could we join you guys? We came by ourselves. We don't have anybody. We don't have a tour guide. Can we join you? And so I, I enveloped them into our communion time. Well, now six years later, they're emailing me and saying, that changed our life. The things that you shared, the insights that you shared, that made such a profound difference in our life. And I'm thinking only God could cause somebody that I met on the other side of the world on a random date six years later in the midst of my struggling with peace and significance and meaning, only God could orchestrate that. The God who is powerfully present the God who is comprehensively complete in the peace that he gives us, who knows our needs. He knows how to encourage us. He knows how to speak to us. And just what a powerful thing that was for me. Christian author Paul David Tripp shares in his in, the insight in his book, uh, New, Mor New Morning Mercies. He says this, So you ask, where is peace to be found? The question is answered clearly and powerfully in Isaiah 26, where God says that he will keep in perfect peace the one whose mind is stayed on him because he trusts in him. The verse goes on to say, trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord is an everlasting rock. This passage tells us where peace is to be found, and it's never found in trying to figure out the secret will of God. It's not to be found in personal planning or attempts to control the circumstances and people in our life. Peace is found in trusting the person who controls the things that we don't and that we can't. It comes from trusting the person who, who understands and, and knows no mystery because he has planned it all. How do you experience this remarkable peace? The kind of peace <coughs> that doesn't fade away when disappointments come, when people are difficult, or when circumstances are hard. You experience it by keeping your mind stayed on the Lord. 
Hebrews chapter 12 says, by, by fixing our eyes upon Jesus, by fixing our gaze. Distraction is looking at everything around us. It's like Peter looking at the waves rather than Jesus as he's walking to him. Fixing our eyes, our gaze upon Jesus, that's what it means for keeping our mind stayed on him. The more you meditate on his glory, his power, his wisdom, his grace, his faithfulness, his righteousness, his patience, his passion to redeem, and his commitment to his eternal promises to you, the more you can deal with mystery in your life. Why? Because you know the one behind the mystery is gloriously good, worthy, not only of your trust, but also of your worship. It really is true that peace in times of trouble is not found in figuring out your life, but in worship of the one who has everything already figured out. That's the answer to peace. We know that intellectually, but we struggle with that every time we go through tough times. I love what the prophet Isaiah writes about peace in his prophecy, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 to 7. Many of you know this by heart. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom, he will establish it and uphold justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal or passion of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Scripture speaks of a future time when God returns and descends to earth to set up his millennial kingdom, and we will reign and rule with him, and there will finally be perfect peace on earth. But the point is, we know the Prince of Peace. We know the author of peace, and we have the reality of him living within us right now through the Holy Spirit. And so that peace is a present peace, not just a future peace. It's something that we long for, that we anticipate, that we look forward to, the meaning of Advent, but it's also something that we participate in and enjoy and experience now through God's grace. I love what Beth Moore says in her book about breaking free, discovering the victory of total surrender. She says, what do you suppose would happen if we trusted God's commands? Well, we don't have to wonder because he's already clearly told us in Isaiah 48, verse 18. If you would pay attention, the Hebrew word there is hearken, hark the herald angels sing. If you would hearken to my commands, your peace would have been like a river, your righteousness like the waves of the sea. She comments with this application. Consider the following applications as you imagine peace like a river. A river is a moving stream of water. God's word doesn't say that we'll have peace like a pond. If we're honest, we might admit to thinking of peaceful people as quite boring. We might think I'd rather forego peace and have an exciting life. But when was the last time you saw a whitewater rapid? Few bodies of water are more exciting than rivers. To have peace like a river is to have security and tranquility while at the same time experiencing bumps and unexpected turns on life's journey. Peace is submission to a trustworthy authority, not resignation from activity. Secondly, a river is a body of fresh water fed by springs or tributary streams. To experience peace, we must be feeding our relationship with God. 
I found that I can't retain peace in the present by, relay, by relying on a relationship from the past. As a river is continually renewed with the moving waters of springs and streams, so our peace comes from an active, ongoing, obedient relationship with the Prince of Peace, with the Good Shepherd. Finally, thirdly, a river begins and ends with a body of water. Every river has an upland source and an ultimate outlet or mouth. Rivers depend on and are always connected to other bodies of water. Likewise, peace, like a river, flows from a continuous connection with the upland source, Jesus Christ, which is a timely reminder that this life will ultimately spill out into glorious eternal life. This present life is not our destination. Alleluia. We who know Christ move over rocks and sometimes cliffs, through narrow places and wide valleys, to a heavenly destination. Until then, abiding in Christ, John chapter 15, is the key to staying deliberately connected with our upland source. This is the conclusion. Take pleasure in knowing that God inspired his word with great care and immaculate precision. He chose every word purposefully. When he said we could have peace like a river in Isaiah 48, 18, he wasn't drawing a loose analogy. He meant it. What does it take to have this peace? Attention to God's commands by obedience through the power of the Holy Spirit. Obedience to God's authority not only brings peace like a river, but righteousness like the waves of the sea. Not righteous perfection, but righteous consistency. I like that. Righteous consistency, and that's available for us. Well, the third thing I want to suggest today is that God's peace is also universally unifying. Universally unifying. And Paul declares that so beautifully in Ephesians 2, 14 to 16. He says, For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when in his body on the cross he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of the law with its commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from two groups. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross. And our hostility toward each other was put to death. That's the beauty of knowing God and having his peace, that it spills out into our relationships. It, one of the things I, I've been amazed is that as, as I've traveled to different parts of the world, whether it's China, South Korea, Israel, Costa Rica, been fortunate to go to a lot of different places. It's so interesting that people who don't even know me already are open to what I have to say and embrace me because they know that we share a belief in Christ. There's a commonality. There's a unifying thing of knowing God through Christ. There's a lot that we assume. This person is a Christian. That means I assume that we have all of these things in common. Unfortunately, in America, that's not always true, but when you go around the world, people very much hold on to that, and that means a lot to them. And the purpose of peace 
is not just that we might have peace personally, but that you and I would be peacemakers as well. I would be remiss if I landed the plane today and just said, let's go and all experience God's peace because having peace is, is proactive as well. I, I, I like this quote, a positive theology of peace so a proper understanding of God and of peace isn't simply reactive, but proactive. It takes the initiative. It creates peace. It sees peace not merely as something experienced by refraining from war or conflict, but also as something to be achieved through taking peacemaking initiatives. Peace, like war, must be waged courageously, persistently, and creatively with heart and with wisdom. John Piper once said, you can know God's children by whether they are willing to make sacrifices for peace the way that he did. We as Christians can talk about God's blessing and benefits all day long, but it's when other people see us being willing to lay down our, our rights and our life and our, our prerogatives, our desires and the best interests of others that people start listening to our message, and they start believing the God that we serve when we start living out that peace. 